I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Going to read beginning in verse 5. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Part of the task of Christians, part of the task of the church, is is clear in the text we just read, is to expose darkness, to expose unrighteousness. We are called to shine the light of God's word upon the unrighteousness around us, and even in our own midst, if it arises. We are to take God's word and expose those dark corners. And certainly as we think of God's word, we think of the law of God that is contained in his word, this law that reveals our sinful state to us as we consider the righteousness of God revealed in his law and our unrighteousness in comparison to that law. But this exposing that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 5, particularly in verse 11, is more than just simply condemning people. It is more than just simply saying that is wrong, that is dark, that is bad, judgment is coming. That's part of it, but there's more to it than that. There is also in this text very clearly an evangelistic element here. In verses 11 to 14, we see this quite clearly. It culminates in verse 14 with this call to salvation is what it is. He writes, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so there's this proclaiming we're to do as we expose darkness with the law of God and also proclaiming Christ, the answer to man's sinful problem. Today, across the country and across the U.S. as well, uh, quite a number of pastors and churches, I don't know how many, uh, but quite a few, not enough, I suppose, but a number, uh, have been preaching today on biblical sexuality and biblical conversion of a sinner out of sin and to Christ. And uh, this is all part of an initiative, and we wanted to be part of this um, because this is 
an issue that we simply can't avoid today. Uh, This initiative to have this day where churches would preach on this subject is a response to a new law that has now come into effect in our country that outlaws, indeed it criminalizes, so-called conversion therapy. And so again, we want to be part of this day to preach on this subject because we cannot simply afford, as Christians, we cannot afford to be unaware of what is going on around us nor can we afford to be naive about it. And part of our task, as we just read, is discerning right and wrong and exposing that which is evil. As we also then hold forth the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation for the unrighteous. Now, ordinarily... We preach our way through books of the Bible. We do not go headline hunting and then try to build a sermon series off of that. But certainly as we preach through Scripture, we seek to apply it to the world in which we live, to your life, to our lives. Uh, What does this mean for us today? How does this apply to the present situation? And there are moments and times where things occur in society around us that warrants just Maybe pressing pause on where we've been and dealing with it directly from the pulpit and from the scriptures. And if you remember, even last week as we've been going through Philippians, we saw in chapter 2 the necessity of striving to be those as believers, as the Lord's people, who strive to be without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted or perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And so in many ways, what we're doing now is just trying to be consistent with that and do this very thing. Hold fast to the word of life in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And this particular way that is being manifested today. Additionally, I think in the last two years, we've talked a lot, it seems, about government And this is not simply because we suddenly have this interest in being super political. But as many others have pointed out, and I think it's true, the reality is our governing authorities today, they are becoming increasingly religious. They are encroaching on our ground, on our territory. The separation that there once was between church and state is crumbling. And it's not the Christians who are making it crumble. It is the government who is inserting themselves into our business, into the worship of the church, into God's worship. We've seen this a lot over the last couple of years. They're very comfortable now, our authorities, telling us how many of us may gather, what it is we must wear, what kind of medical procedures we have to have if we're going to do it, even what sorts of activities must be had or should not be done. Uh, do not sing. We've not had as nearly as much of it here in Saskatchewan as our neighboring provinces and throughout even the country, though it obviously still has affected us here. All along the way, they're operating from a fundamentally rebellious view of God, of human, of humanity, what it means to be human. They're redefining what is right and wrong, morality at every turn, and codifying these things in law. 
And so as this just continues to increase, we have to, at times, just stop and address it very as directly as we can, at least, with God's help, to know where we stand and to know how to respond. And this new law most certainly does clash with what scriptures say. And again, it is not that the Bible has changed. It is not that scripture has changed on this matter. But most certainly, we would say society has and our laws now have as well. So as we go today, we're going to jump around a little bit in the scriptures. And eventually we will settle out uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 to 11. Really the main point of this sermon today is really to call you as a Christian, as an individual believer in the Lord, if indeed you do believe in him, and then us as a church to hold the line, to hold the line on what the Bible teaches about sexuality and what it means to be male and female. If you're helped by knowing an outline in advance, uh, here is our outline for today. Uh, first, what we're going to do is look at the conversion therapy law that has been passed. Consider that. And secondly, we are going to look at this line that we are to hold, that is our position as Christians. What is it we are holding on to? And then thirdly, we're going to look at three reasons to diligently hold that line. That's kind of cheating. I give three reasons in the third point. but So first of all, the conversion therapy law. Historically, conversion therapy has referred to therapy that relied on what are now understood to be pseudoscientific techniques in order to try and change or convert homosexuals or bisexuals back to heterosexuality. These techniques included a diverse range of things, including hypnosis, including shock therapy, including even more grievous things like castration, lobotomies, a surgery in the brain, and even things like testicle transplants. And many who underwent such therapies did so against their wills. And so it was, of course, in the 19th century, uh, understood still that homosexuality was, uh, was aberrant. It was not yet uh, socially accepted. And yet also, this is the rise of Technology and the age of reason and uh, man is, is uh, primarily just a physical being, not really spiritual and physical. And so something like homosexuality, there's just something scientific that's not quite working. And so if we can just find the right switch inside your body, we'll flip that switch and it'll fix the problem. That's the kind of arrogance of the medical community. It's hard to imagine arrogance like that in the medical community. In time, these therapies have been all but dropped, and the so-called science behind it has been proven false. Again, it's, we call it pseudoscience today, but in its day, it was just science. Right? It's not till later when it's proven false that it gets that rap as being fake science or pseudoscience. Also something worth keeping in mind these days. And so this is still what a lot of people think of 
when they hear the term conversion therapy, something along these lines, a person's being forced down, tied down maybe, against their will, being forced in some grievous manner to undergo some sort of operation or procedure against their will. And so if there's a law that would ban that kind of thing, anti-conversion therapy law, for many people, it just would, that would seem to make sense. No problem. But the definition of conversion therapy has expanded. It has been greatly broadened out. And despite those more egregious practices being done away with, the argument is that conversion therapy still exists in other forms. And these other forms, likewise, need to be eradicated from society. In many ways, this is brilliant arguing, argument. The person who controls the conversation, or the wording, controls the conversation. It puts a person in the position that if we want to say that we're against the anti-conversion therapy law, then it makes it sound like we must be for conversion therapy and all that it might imply especially if it is still thought of in the popular mind as referring to coercive and manipulative procedures and practices. And so who wants to even risk appearing to be on the side of those you know, 19th and 20th century butchers? But as we'll see, the definition now is expanded such that you can be completely against those coercive and manipulative tactics and practices, and yet you're still lumped in under the conversion therapy banner. This is why this is so problematic. So back in early December, Bill C-4 was passed through our parliament with a unanimous vote of acceptance. The conservative party, so-called, actually fast-tracked it through. Uh, Nobody voted against it. They then uh, celebrated the occasion with handshakes and high fives. You can actually, you can watch this on YouTube. It's a little depressing, but you can watch it if you want. They cross the floor and they're handshaking, hugging. It's this great moment in their eyes, their understanding. Nothing to bring opposing parties together quite like this. So it was passed without any, any opposition or debate, Bill C-4. Then it went to the Senate, same thing there. I don't know about the hugging, but it was passed with fast track through. And so now our criminal code has been amended with a section now on conversion therapy, section 320 of the criminal code. And it is now illegal to knowingly cause someone to undergo conversion therapy, to promote or advertise conversion therapy, or to receive financial or other material benefit from conversion therapy. And the There can be a range of fines and penalties within it if you're convicted uh, with a maximum of up to five years of jail. So again, if this was just those old practices, maybe wouldn't think it's a big deal. But the key here is how they define conversion therapy. And so I just want to take a few minutes and go through this and let us hear this with our own ears. So here's how it defines conversion therapy. Conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, 
B, change a person's gender identity to cisgender. So, for example, trying to get someone's gender identity, how they understand themselves, to line up with their biological sex. C, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. This is not just how one would identify themselves, but now how they would express their gender. If you want to help them have that conform to the, the sex that says they were assigned at birth, that's illegal. Now just note, uh, we are not really assigned a sex at birth as if it's like, well, there's, we've had a lot of women, you know, girls, females born today, so we're just going to assign you to the male team because we need that. It's recognized. It's something that's recognized at birth. But the, this assigned language is everywhere. It continues. Conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to, this is D, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. E, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity. Or F, repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. So, in light of this definition, a scenario. If a 14-year-old kid says that they're a homosexual, tells their parents, I think I'm a homosexual now, or I, I think, and they're, they're working it out still maybe, but they're pretty sure. And that parent talks to them, and they're not really getting anywhere, so that parent then takes them to their pastor's office, asks for help, and that pastor then opens the scriptures, lays out God's design for men and women, what it says about sexuality, shows this young person these truths, seeks to persuade them that this is good and right and true, calls them to repent of their sin, their homosexual sin, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be forgiven, and then to walk in newness of life, to embrace how God has created them, his good design for them as a male or female. Is that a practice, service, or service, or treatment designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual? Is that a practice designed to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior? It seems pretty obvious to me that that would be an example of it. I really see, I see no other way around it. The section of our criminal code 320 now condemns anyone who, as I said earlier, knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy. So is the parent, in my illustration, guilty of conversion therapy? They have taken that their, their child to undergo this kind of practice, to hear this kind of thing being said. In which the preacher or anyone else tries to persuade them that this is an error. It goes on to offer a clarification on an exception, maybe, of sorts, sort of. It says, for greater certainty, this definition does not include a practice, treatment, or service 
that relates to the exploration or development of an integrated personal identity and that is not based on an assumption that a particular sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression is to be preferred over another. So if somebody needs help because they're experiencing a gender dysphoria, they're not sure what to make of these different feelings they have, or maybe they have unwanted sexual desires even, it's okay, they're saying here, to have an exploratory conversation about that, but you cannot have that with someone that has an assumption that a particular outcome is to be preferred. So as a Christian, as Christians, do we have an assumption about how that conversation should go and what that person should do? how this should end. I'd say we'd have a stronger word for it than a preference, a preferred outcome. When you use language like immoral, or the Bible's language, abomination, to describe one of these. David Lametti is our minister of justice. He was asked, if flat out asked, if the bill would still allow for ministers to condemn homosexuality. This is actually his response when it was Bill C-6 that got shut down when there was an election called. C-4 got reintroduced, similar but even worse. Uh, But this is his response. This was in um, March of 2020. Here's what he said, quote. So, again, the question. Can ministers, it's still legal for ministers to condemn homosexuality. Answer. A legitimate conversation with an open end in helping someone to explore their sexuality, those conversations are absolutely necessary as people move forward in life. Whether it's a guidance counselor, whether it's a religious leader, whether it's a parent, if it's open-ended and it's exploratory, then it's not covered by this legislation. What is covered by this legislation are practices that attempt to change one's sexual orientation toward a predefined goal. That's his answer. If it's open-ended and exploratory and there's no predefined goal, then it's not covered in this legislation. That's his own wording. This is the man who introduced the bill. So I know there are some uh, believers, Christians, that are hopeful that this new law is just, they use words like it's vague. It's vaguely worded. And that this will get sorted out by the courts in our favor. Uh, Some even express confidence uh, that the the intention, they, they, they will tell you, the intention of this bill is to just stop coercive practices. Not things like preaching or conversations between parents and children or pastors and churchgoers, etc. And certainly, There are some ambiguities in this law, in this bill that's now part of our criminal code, and it will absolutely need to be battled out in the courts, and and we'll see how the courts will decide. I'm, I'm not crazy optimistic, but maybe the Lord will have mercy, and this will get thrown out as unconstitutional, and we'll be all the better for it down the road. One can hope that. However, to think that this is just a little bit vague, I think is being naive. 
They were petitioned over and over by lobbyists to clarify these very things, parental rights, freedom of religion, etc. And they did not do that. In fact, they made it more restrictive in Bill C-4 than it was in Bill C-6. And it's clear what the goal is of the activists who've pushed for this law and the politicians who've put it forward and now passed it. I think the goal becomes very evident. It is not simply that they do not want you, me, or anyone to coerce people. It is much deeper than that. It is more sinister, frankly, than that. The left and those who are promoting this, what they are demanding of you is your approval of them. They are demanding your support. They want your brain. If I, to be dramatic about it, they want your very soul. You are not allowed to have the belief that heterosexuality is to be preferred over homosexuality. Or you can't be part of any conversation about this. That's really what this exception or clarification clause means in this bill in our criminal code now. So this is why if, if we say, oh, I, I'm against coercive practices, manipulative techniques, forcing people... In fact, I can't even actually convert anybody. You know, I explain scripture to people and, and it's got to be the spirit who changes the heart of that person and then they will only then change and agree willingly as the spirit leads them and guides them. If you say that, it's not enough for them. Again, they want your agreement. So, again, this becomes clear as we listen to the politicians themselves and also the activists and lobbyist groups that, have, that push for this kind of thing. So there's a, something called the Center for Gender and Sexual Health Equity in British Columbia. And one of their research scientists wrote the following. So this is back in May of 2020, and this appeared first in the Globe and Mail. So a mainstream media outlet. And this was back when the city of Calgary in 2020 was debating a conversion therapy ban in the city. And some opponents of the ban were arguing that conversations and counseling of various types need to be allowed to continue. That can't be banned. And they didn't think that this, these conversations were conversion therapy at all because they're not coercing. They're just having conversations. They're talking. They're counseling. They're not forcing anyone to do anything. Well, this is what this individual from this uh, Center for Gender and Sexual Health Equity wrote in the Globe and Mail. From national surveys conducted last year, we know that tens of thousands of LGBTQ2 Canadians have experienced conversion therapy. Tens of thousands in 2019. That's not, that's not tens of thousands of people getting electroshock therapy. He, he goes on. They frequently describe exactly the kind of talk therapy that opponents of the ban seek to protect, where a provider attempts to compel an individual to manage and resist expressions of gender or sexuality that differ from mainstream expectations. So conversations that seek to compel somebody to resist, that is conversion therapy. 
He goes on, to effectively prevent conversion therapy, legislative bans must adjust their definitions to clearly state that the defining feature of conversion therapy is not an attempt to convert or to change intrinsic feelings of gender identity or expression or sexual orientation. Rather, the defining feature of conversion therapy is the goal of avoiding acceptance and acknowledgement of LGBTQ2 lives as compatible with being healthy and happy. Did you catch that? The defining feature of this is that you will not approve of us. That's the defining feature. That's their own words. It's not coercion. It's not even your effort to change someone's mind. That's all part of it, for sure. Can be. But it's that you will not accept their position position as being good, as being right for one to have a healthy life. And if your counsel doesn't come from that position, then you're performing conversion therapy in some form. And then he goes on and adds, he says, this healthy sense of self is something that all Canadians deserve, regardless of sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. Pedophiles? Would he fit that in here? Logically, that's next. That sense of self, he writes, is what is fundamentally at stake in the debates over conversion therapy. And this is one more important thing, I think, for us to understand as we think about our world we live in. In today's world, in order to understand what it means to be me, what it means to be an authentic human self, this has been completely internalized and subjective. Meaning, I decide the truth about me. And sexuality, moreover, is now at the core of that self-identity. It's determined ultimately by me, and sexuality is at the core of it. So, if you want to oppose homosexuality, for example, and say it is wrong and it is sinful, then they will receive that as an assault on their very personhood. Their dignity is shredded, in their view, by your position. So, we, you come along, you have this concept where you're, we're made in the image of God, these this is uh, certainly sinful and wrong activity and action and lifestyle, but you still say you have love and, and can you know, honor this person and, and treat them with, with dignity and respect. They would say, not a chance, because you fundamentally undermine the very core of my being. You rip apart my dignity when you speak that way, because they understand themselves inherently in terms of their sexuality. That's who they are. It's tied to them. And so they will just view you as irrationally keeping people back from a healthy sense of self. So, to summarize this, while the precise application of this law, it needs to be worked out through the courts, clearly, it's going to take people getting arrested, charged under this, and then battling it out in courts to see what happens. I don't know how fast this will all occur uh, whether they'll just want to wait before they try to press this home and, and just continue to send the messaging out that this kind of thing is wicked, I, I don't know. 
But nevertheless, the intention and goal of those who promote this law and this thinking is not terribly ambiguous. Whether you are a parent, a teacher, a counselor, a friend, a pastor, etc., you're not allowed to counsel someone toward the predefined goal of heterosexuality or cisgender, gender identity and expression. They want to get rid of that thinking altogether. There's a lot here, and this touches on a lot of different things. There's much more that could be said. haven't really discussed much about the assault on parental rights that this new law is. There is, again, ministers themselves, talking uh, the former minister of um, inclusion and youth. There is a minister of that. Talking about how this law will give, will put the law on the side of children against their parents. And this is, they, they say this very openly. Speaking of how this law will be able to deal with parents in that situation. So as I said, in the face of this, our response we are called to hold the line. We are called to hold the line on biblical teaching about sexuality, about gender, about what it means to be a human being, about authority, epistemology, how we know the things we know. Family. So let's briefly examine this line that we are to hold. Of course, holding the line is military language for standing our ground. It's for not retreating or giving up. You're under attack. You hold the line. You don't back up. You don't give them ground. You stay there. This is our position. Dig in. And I want to get to some reasons why it's essential that we hold here. But first, I want to quickly give an overview of what the Bible does say, some of what the Bible does say about these matters. What line is it we're holding? Well, first of all, God himself is the creator, and therefore, he is the authority on these matters. Fundamentally, this whole mess is a question of authority. Who gets to decide these things? You know, in the preamble of Bill C-4, that led, that was passed, and now leads to this change of our criminal code, in the preamble, they call the idea, the belief that, say, heterosexuality is to be preferred over homosexuality, they call that a myth. They use the language of myth. That is actually a very shocking, should be shocking to us and, and disturbing, that they would declare this to be a myth. Just, that's it, just a myth. No... Even reasoning for that. But that is, that is their reasoning for, for this whole thing, for introducing this whole bill and changing the law. It's a myth. It's just a myth, and it harms people. It's a myth if you want to hold that homosexuality is bad and, and you ought to be heterosexual. That's God's plan or whatever. That's a myth. So just like that, what the Scripture teaches about this is a myth. It's deemed a myth. It's a question of authority. Who gets to decide that? 
Genesis 1.1 is a verse that is probably for a lot of us was the first verse we ever memorized, ever learned. It is precious to hear children quote that verse, but it is much more than just precious in that way. It is fundamental to virtually everything. Genesis 1.1, of course, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is God and there is creation. This is an important and incredibly important distinction to make. This creation is his world. If we would understand who we are as human beings, we must understand ourselves ultimately in relation to God, in relation to our creator, the one who is the designer of this world, who is holy, who is infinite, who is perfect, whose holy law given to man arises from his own intrinsic perfections. Certainly we look to God's word where he has revealed himself thoroughly to learn of him. We find in his word our ultimate and infallible authority, all that we need for life and godliness. It's sufficient in these matters we're talking about today and whatever else is going to come our way. And yet God has also left us testimony in creation itself. Which, as we read earlier from Romans 1, testifies to mankind of God's eternal power and his divine nature. Moreover, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Creation is preaching about the glory and greatness and handiwork of the eternal almighty creator. If we would just see it, of course, Romans 1 tells us man suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. And Romans 1 goes on to make clear what happens when human beings do reject God, become idolaters. We begin to worship created things. And this further fuels the descent into unrighteousness and into perversion in which God judges men and women by, as we read earlier, handing them over to their lusts and to their unrighteousness, included in their homosexuality gave them up language at least three times in Romans 1. This is God's world. He knows what is best. He is the one who makes the rules. He is the authority. It is not the, realm, it is not the job of government to determine morality but to uphold morality, to punish wickedness. But they don't get to define those things. God determines what it means to be an authentic and fulfilled human self. And we are meant to conform to his ways. Second being, so these are... What line are we holding? What truths are we clinging to? God's the authority. Second, being biologically male or female is an important part of who God made you. And this is something to be embraced. So Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, 
He created them. Male and female matters. It is part of God's good creation. Get to more of that in a moment. But third, what line are we holding? That marriage is to be between a biological man and a biological woman. We see that in Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So marriage is between a man and a woman. Marriage is intended for life. And in Matthew 19, verse 5, Jesus quotes Genesis 2, 24, when he's asked about divorce. He says, there were accommodations for that because of your sinfulness, the hardness of heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. And then he quotes Genesis 2, 24. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is to be between a man and a woman. It is intended to be for life, and it is the sphere in which children are to be raised and nurtured, which we see in Genesis 1.28. The scriptures make clear that what Genesis 1 and 2 says about marriage and family is, in fact, to be normative. It is, sets the standard for the way human beings are to act, are to view and behave in marriage and with one another, male and female. In one, Genesis 1.28, the command is given to be fruitful and multiply. We might think, well, there's, there is uniqueness to Adam and Eve and the mission that they were given by God, absolutely. But if you jump ahead to Genesis 9 and verse 1, so at the end of Genesis 8, you have the, the floodwaters subside and God strikes a covenant with Noah. And with Noah's descendants, which is every single person alive now, even now. And in 9.1, he reiterates the command he had given to Adam and to Eve for Noah and his descendants, saying, essentially, this is still on to be fruitful and multiply, multiply, to fill the earth. So it's reiterated in the context of a fallen world now, but this is still man's task. This is still what we are to be about and to do. And of course, nature itself tells us that a man and a woman are needed for this task of being fruitful and multiplying. God has equipped men and women with the anatomy that makes this possible. Again, this is not something we even, the Bible is clear on this, but you can just get there from nature, just examining human beings and anatomy. This is not... Radical, what I'm saying, or new. Fourthly, being a man or a woman does bring with it certain gender roles that are determined by God and not society. Gender roles are believed today to be purely cultural constructs. Purely just society, whatever the society is, determines, you know, what's expected of a man or a woman. That's all it is. And so as somebody who's trying to live with their true authentic self and they feel they are a woman in a man's body, then they need to throw off 
all those externals. Throw off societal pressures because it's just simply made up by society. You need to get released of that. You need to maybe even overcome your own physical body and biology to be who you truly are. Everywhere. I mean, just medical websites, they will, they will tell you this. Gender is just a social construct. That is the gender role. And certainly, we should admit and acknowledge that a given society can create expectations for men and women that are not biblical and may well be bad. I think beauty culture, I think, is pretty well horrible, unhelpful, with certain expectations, perhaps, upon women that aren't helpful, aren't right. That's just one example. However, there are clearly God-ordained roles for men and women that are to be embraced. Distinction between men and women is to be upheld. Understanding there is intentional distinction here, and yet both male and female are made in the image of God, Genesis 1.27. There's dignity for both, even though there are some differences in roles. Genesis tells us in its narrative that Adam was created first. Then Genesis 2, verse 20, we see that there was no suitable helper for him. And so the solution God gives is he makes Eve to be his helper. She's a necessary and excellent helpmate that Adam rejoiced greatly in, if you read the end of Genesis 2. Paul makes clear that there are different roles for men and women in both the home and in the church. And he doesn't root this in just what society happens to expect of you. He roots it in what God has done in creation, in the created order. 1 Timothy 2.13, Paul reasons from the order of creation that man was created first to say that women are not to exercise authority in the church over a man. He appeals to creation, for man was formed first, then Eve. That's not a cultural argument. He's not just saying, well, because people these days would think that's weird. No, because of what God did in creation, moreover, that was very good creation. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 clarifies the household code in which husbands are to lead and love their wives as Christ has loved the church, while wives are called to respect and submit to their husbands. So there are some gender roles that are determined by God, that stand, withstand the test of time, that are true in every culture, and remain good. Fifth, the line that we are holding to, Homosexuality is a perversion of God's design. Again, this is clear as we look in Scripture. And I think it's clear again if we consider nature. The Scriptures are unequivocal in this matter that homosexuality is sinful. Again, it calls it an abomination. That's a very strong language. Leviticus 20.15, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, 
Both of them have committed an abomination. Does that verse seek to move somebody toward a predefined goal of what is good in these matters? We read Romans 1 earlier, which explicitly speaks of homosexuality as exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And this is part of God's outworking of wrath on sinners, giving people up to such passions. So it's evident, again, even by nature, we need males and females of any society is going to reproduce and continue on. And they need to come together in a union, in a marriage union. Homosexuality is contrary even to nature itself. Sixth, the line we are holding, rejecting gender identity that aligns with your biological sex at birth is rebellion against God. Again, the male and female distinction is to be upheld because both male and female are important, created by God, part of his good design. There are gender roles, as we've said, that we are designed to play that are consistent with our natural biology. saw in a grocery store, a TV was on, the news was on. I don't watch mainstream news a whole lot. Along the bottom, just reading the headlines, and uh, mostly it was just panic and fear, but this one was also, but it started by talking about a new study that shows that uh, pregnant people, and then it goes on to talk about what pregnant people happens. People. Because if you say it's a woman now, well, that might actually be someone who identifies as a man. But we cannot escape the fact that biological women are the ones who get pregnant and give birth to babies. This is all part of God's design. It's good. And so to reject this is to reject God's authority and to reject God's design and really mar the image of God. Deuteronomy 22.5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. It's not just condemning a wife because she threw on her husband's you know, hoodie because she was cold for a moment. But it's condemning one who is blurring the distinction between male and female acting, living as if they are the other. And it says it's an abomination. So again, on this, there's more that makes up the biblical teaching on these matters. We could say a lot more about marriage, certainly about family and so on. But it certainly includes these things we've talked about, the the biblical instruction. And on these things and wherever else the Bible speaks on these matters, we must hold the line. And so finally, I want to look at three reasons to diligently hold the line. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. We're just going to briefly go through this and look at three reasons to hold this line. There are more, but we're just going to take three here, mercifully. Most people are going to assume that you just are irrationally filled with hate. 
That's going to be the assumption when you try to when you hold the line. We will certainly be misunderstood that way and misconstrued. Let us seek to have biblical reasons for this and have your conscience right with the Lord so when those accusations come, you're able to dismiss those and not crumple. So reason number one, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why we hold the line. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see what's at stake in the matter? The unrighteous who unrepentantly live in their unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. As we read earlier in Ephesians 5, it is on account of these things, he says, the wrath of God is coming. Judgment is coming. Notice in this vice list, as it's often called, is sexually, sexual immorality, the general term there, adultery, various forms of sexual perversion. And then listed is homosexuality. The ESV says men who practice homosexuality. There's actually two words, Greek words there, translated in that way as men who practice homosexuality. The first word is the word soft. Or effeminate. And the second word is actually a compound word. It's a compound of the word male and the word bed. And those two words, the word male and bed, are used in Leviticus 20.13 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul was aware of, that the apostles often quoted from. And in 20.13 of Leviticus, that's where it speaks of men lying with a male as with a woman as an abomination. And Paul just unites these two words to speak of this very act. And so many take these two words, soft, and men lying on a bed with men. In 1 Corinthians 6, as a reference to the active and passive partners in the act. And that's quite... Quite likely, quite possible, exact, possibly exactly what Paul is condemning here. Other translations, there are some English translations that will have effeminate as well as homosexuals there, as if they're two different things. Regardless, the point I want to make is that our new law makes it a criminal offense to repress activity and desires that the Bible says will keep men and women out of the kingdom of God. We cannot abide that. We cannot accommodate that. We are in a position of either obeying God or obeying man. To agree with that would be to assign people over to judgment. When it is our duty to expose the darkness to light and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. A second reason to diligently hold the line is that deception is real. 
The deception is real. Verse 9, midway through, says, Do not be deceived about this. Men and women are deceived about these vices. We don't want to think that anyone's going to be outside the kingdom. We want to downplay our own sin. We want to downplay the sins of our loved ones, of people around us, even complete strangers. This is deception. And our law seeks to protect this deception, to strengthen it, to criminalize the truth. And we are told here, do not be deceived. So we need to be on guard in these days. Professing Christians will be lulled in, will be bombarded, perhaps, into thinking that maybe homosexuality isn't a big deal. In fact, the cracks in that foundation have already been forming for quite some time. Many would already argue that there is an orientation that's fine, that there's desires are oriented towards the same sex. That's, not, that's, not, that's fine and as long as you just don't act upon those things. And we have talked about that before as well. But if you desire something that is illicit, that too is sinful. A desire is something we would seek to mortify as believers. For example, if you desired to murder people, we said, look, as long as you just don't act on it, right? The desire, some people are just that way. As long as you just don't act on it, it's fine. No. We want you to fight that, to put that off, to put on love of neighbor, compassion for other people. Remembering that deception is real will help us to be on guard for our own sake, our own selves. I think it will also help us in our response in another way, and that I hope it will help us to have compassion for the lost, compassion for those who are deceived. But by the grace of God, there go the rest of us. I think understanding there is deception will help us even temper our anger about this with compassion. Just briefly on that, I am angry. I'm angry at our government that they would do this. I'm angry that creation norms are treated as myths and just declared to be such, and everybody's okay with that, seemingly. It's maddening. When the truth of God's word is just blasphemed and dismissed. I'm angry that there's an assault on parents who want to raise their children as they are called to do by God in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And now this is putting fear into you that if you say the wrong thing, if they ask you a question and they're having a bad day or they're in this immature state and they go to the wrong person, you could be in big, big trouble. Just sowing that seed of fear and division in the home. That's maddening to me. It infuriates me that people push this stuff on other people. Not only that, but those who say are struggling with these desires and maybe wake up one day, they've gone through all the transitioning procedures that they've been told to do, and they wake up and realize this is not right. This is not okay. This is wrong, and I need help. Where are they going to turn to? It's illegal. To advertise that you're there to help them. You can't do that. 
Where are they going to go for help? Even if they want it, it's going to be difficult for them to find. These laws stand in the way of your neighbor. It's not loving to just, oh well. And I don't think it's, I don't think we have to pretend that we're not, that we're not upset about it. That that's not infuriating. It doesn't make us angry. I think we need to be careful, heed the scripture's warnings about our anger, to not sin in our anger, to not become self-righteous in our anger, to not lose compassion for lost sinners. And so upsetting as all this is, it's true that sinners are going to sin. There is a deception. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about wicked deception in the last days. And this reminds us we need spiritual weapons for this battle. This certainly includes prayer. We need to be much in prayer. This includes the word of God. As we live, we seek to take thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. We proclaim, as we saw, light. We preach Christ and we leave the results with God. And this leads to the third reason to hold the line. God does indeed save and sanctify sinners, including the sexually immoral. There is great hope. There is grace for sinners. When Paul says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, it is clear that he's talking about those who remain in their sin unrepentantly. This is clear because as he's talking to the church in Corinth, in verse 11, he says... And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Corinthian church was made up of those who once walked in the very unrighteous things that Paul has just condemned. This describes who they were. They're made up of, this congregation is made up of former adulterers former homosexuals, former drunkards, idolaters, and so on. But they had heard the good news that Jesus Christ had died for them, that he's died for sinners, even horrific sinners, the worst of sinners. They heard the good news that although the unrighteous deserve the wrath of God, and on account of this, the wrath of God is indeed coming, they heard the good news that Jesus Christ has come. He has substituted in his own perfect life to take the place of sinners. And these unrighteous Corinthians had responded in faith. Indeed, they came awake from death at the preaching of Christ. The light had exposed their sin, and they had heard the effectual call of their shepherd. And they recognized his voice, and the lights came on. They rose, went forth, and followed him. They believed in the risen Lord Jesus, the conqueror of death. They were justified in his name, declared righteous, given the righteousness of God by faith in Christ. On account of what Christ has done, they were washed, cleansed, sanctified. Their slate was wiped clean. In their person, they were not already perfect. We know this, you've read 1 Corinthians. There were still issues. There was still sin in the church. 
They still had the flesh that they were dealing with and fighting with. They were not made perfect just yet. But they had indeed changed as God had saved them. They were washed, they were sanctified, as he says. They had received new life within. That old heart of stone had been replaced with the heart of flesh. They were born again, they were regenerated, made new. And with that, they left behind their celebration of sin and their living in unrighteousness. And they were now seeking by God's grace to walk in newness of life. Such were, were some of you. The world today says the sexual orientation cannot change. And so it's, it's, it's harmful. It causes harm to people to suggest they ought to, to suggest it's sinful. It causes harm to society when people in society think that way, believe those things. They say, they say that studies have shown that one cannot change their orientation. And yet, people have. God does save and God does sanctify. It happened in Ephesus. We read almost the same thing as 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. It says, you were this way, but now you are light in the Lord. It happened in Corinth. Such were some of you. And it's happened here. We hold the line because there is salvation for all sinners who place their faith in Jesus Christ. We hold the line because while some people, including our own government and perhaps our courts, might revile and afflict us, there will be sinners who hear the call of their master and they come awake from death. How are they going to know this if we all just, if all the Christians just give in here? If that is you, if you are sleeping the sleep of death, if you are walking in unrighteousness, of whatever sort and whatever kind, would you hear the voice of Jesus calling to sinners to come to him, to be forgiven? He is the only way to the Father. He is holy. He is gracious. There is no sinner so great that Jesus cannot save. Paul himself, who wrote these words, in 1 Corinthians 6, who wrote the words we read in Ephesians chapter 5 about the wrath of God coming upon the unrighteous. He seems so harsh. He understood the grace of God. He himself was, in his own estimation, the chief of sinners. He was a persecutor of the church of God, the church of Christ. And God saved even him. 
The one who breathed out murderous threats against the Lord's people. Just as we wrap up, we read from Romans 1. If you think about Romans 1, 18 through to 32, the end of the chapter, it's the wrath of God is revealed against mankind, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men in this long descent of from, from rejecting God into further and further depravity and rampant sin and God handing them over and judgment and all of that. But notice verse 16, right before that. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why are you unashamed of this, Paul? Why is this power of God so necessary, Paul? Why go on proclaiming the gospel? Verse 18, for why is this such a big deal? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness because the world is a complete and utter sinful mess is what he's saying. So we have the answer to this ultimately. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says he's not ashamed of. I'm not preaching anything you've not heard and don't know. You've been coming here at all, going to another like-minded church. I'm just calling us to hold this line. We proclaim the law and we proclaim the gospel in their fullness. Sin is exceedingly sinful. And, and whatever sin we want to talk about, we're, we're, we're not picking here today on homosexuality and transgenderism and so on simply because we want to single them out as the worst sinners in all of the world or whatever. But that is the issue of our day. And so we must speak clearly to it. We must address it. If the government wants to come out with a law and say, you're not allowed to counsel somebody away from adultery, you're not allowed to say that that's bad, we'll respond the same way. We cannot do that. We cannot bow. Sin in all of its forms is exceedingly sinful, worthy of the wrath of God Almighty. We uphold that in its fullness because we also uphold the gospel in its fullness, the grace of God in its fullness, and that all of that sin is wiped clean by Christ for those who believe in him. It's a gift to you of God's grace if you believe in Christ. And this is our message to sinners. This is our message to this LGBT world. Yes, it is sin. It is sin. There is forgiveness of sin in Christ Jesus. And so as we continue through our days, let us seek to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And let us hold the line on God's truth. And should the laws play out against us and there be no earthly court to back us, we nevertheless are called to stand with our God. So let us pray much in these days and let us be unafraid and unashamed to bear the reproach of Christ, considering it greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt as we look to the reward, the inheritance that awaits us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise. You are God and we are not. Your ways are above our ways. You determine what is true and what is good. Father, I pray that you would Cause us in our hearts, 
in our lives to conform ourselves to your word further. That where we need to have our own thinking and thoughts conformed to your word, that we would do just that, that you would help us by your spirit to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ, to think rightly about all of these issues and everything else that we're dealing with. Father, we're so overwhelmed so often by all of this, and we need your grace and mercy continually. We need your help to live out these days. But Father, thank you that none of this catches you off guard. We praise you for your word that prepares your people for these very moments, for the testimony of the saints through your word and through history who have stood in the truth and not backed down and have done so joyfully and gladly and have in many cases suffered greatly for it. And yet who will spend eternity with you. Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us, help us to be wise. Father, we pray for our society around us, likewise, that you would show yourselves merciful. We see your judgment We see men and women handed over, thinking in such depraved ways. It's grievous, Lord. We pray that you would magnify yourself and your son. That people would turn. God, I pray that our our only concern would not be our own comfort. That you would increase compassion for the souls of others. Forgive us, God, where we have failed in this. Again, conform us to the image of your Son. And we are so thankful for the grace that you give to us on account of your Son. We're thankful that we do not have to earn righteousness in order to be justified, but that you justify by grace. So, Father, we ask you now to to bless us, to help us as we continue to worship and as we have fellowship together. Bless our time. Glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.